Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? I'm Jim Rutt. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Yeah. So could you please tell us more about your ideas because you have already the Jim Rutt show and if you can just let us more about what's your show about and your interesting stuff about it. Ah, it's a pretty broad uh, podcast, though I focus on uh, three basic areas. One is basic science. I've been a long time affiliated since I retired from business 20 years ago with the Santa Fe Institute. Uh, I was a researcher there, and then I uh, ended up in the governance side and ended up as the chairman, though I still do a little bit of research. And so I talk to a lot of people in the complexity science field, but also in other areas of science, uh, particularly climate science mm -hmm. and fundamental physics are the areas that I'm interested in. I also uh, talk to people about technology, particularly AI, mm -hmm. uh, uh, though I'll we'll also be talking soon with some folks on applied AI, such as self-driving cars. Mm -hmm. And then the uh, third one, which actually is, I think, relevant to this conversation, is radical social change. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, through a movement called Game B, which I was one of the co-founders of, and there's a good group on Facebook, Game B, all one word, you can find it, uh, that we talk about uh, what do we need to do to make our society more equitable and better for mm -hmm. the people. And I do believe some of that will uh, be relevant to the discussion that we have here. Mm -hmm. Great. So I would like to go back when you were a child. Have you ever heard about robotics or... And how have you ever imagined how robots would be? Was it creepy to you as a kid? Do you remember anything about that? Oh, sure. I was a science fiction reader from the time I was about seven or eight. And I even had a robotic toy when I was younger than that. It was maybe, uh, I got it for Christmas one year. It was probably two feet tall. It had like tank treads mm. on it, had arms that swung. It had a head that would open up and fire a missile out of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was one of my favorite toys when I was five or six. Uh, and so it was uh, definitely playing to the science fiction ideas of robots, but with a somewhat warlike uh, attribute. Yeah, great. So so I, I know you have, you have a, a degree in management from MIT, but that's interesting that how you became interested in kind of technology and in robotics and AI and, and, and this kind of stuff, how this transition would easy how you, how you have this interest in these subjects? Uh, yeah, I was always interested in, uh, you know, I, what, what computers might be able to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and interestingly, uh, I looked into what, when I was at MIT in the 70s, early 70s, I looked into what the AI programs were doing then, and I thought they were not that interesting. So I chose to go a different uh, direction in my career. Uh, but then, around 1980, I ran across a whole new application of technology, which I love, mm. which was the networks. I be, I've been involved in building the uh, community network since 1980, when I, when I went to work for a company called The Source, which was the very first consumer online service. Mm. In 1980, we had available for people who had modems with their computers, much of 
what's on the web today, but character mode only, very slow, 30 mm-hmm. characters a second, and very expensive, $10 an hour. Uh, but we quickly had tens of thousands of members and then hundreds of thousands because it was the only thing like it in the world. You could send email, chat, bullet boards, home shopping, stock prices, news wires, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so from that point forward, uh, my career became dedicated to uh, the application of computer networking to the delivering useful products uh, to consumers and then later professionals. And uh, so that's really where I made the transition. And throughout that career, I kind of danced back and forth between the business side and the technical side. Uh, you know, I was a uh, regional sales manager originally mm-hmm. for the source. And then I was uh, head of software development. Uh, and then I was product manager. Uh, when I went and started my own company, I was VP of technology. Uh, then we, in my second company, I was uh, essentially the CEO. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, back and forth I went. Uh, and even later in my career, when I uh, went to work for large companies, I was uh, uh, a division chief operating officer for Thomson, now Thomson Reuters, basically responsible for the business side. Then I was chief technology officer uh, for the whole company. I was also CEO of our business service, our technology business services. So I kind of did a, you know, went back and forth across that line. I always thought that provided me a good uh, perspective on uh, on the whole problem of how we introduce technology into society, because it's both a technical problem and a business problem. I think that's very interesting, Brian, because I think you already, already in, in the sector of business as a businessman and, and also entrepreneur. I would like to ask you firstly, how we can make technology successful? Because for example, in academia, when you work in the lab, sometimes you're missing many realities, realistic perspectives about a product. So as, as you are a businessman and see, and once you really was a, a CEO, how, how you can transform ideas to be successful products? How you make sure this transition happen in the technology? Ah, very, very good question. Because uh, obviously, in the business world, we had a very different focus than we do in the academic world. Mm-hmm. You know, at the Santa Fe Institute, we produce lots of scientific breakthroughs uh, for which the scientific for which the business application is not clear. But we don't really care because we're in the science business at Santa Fe Institute. But in the business world, the first thing you have to identify is what's the need that you're satisfying for the customer, and focus really strongly on that. Uh, further. Uh, this and this is something that I had to learn slowly mm-hmm. as an impatient young man. I thought a product that was a bit better than the way things were being done today would be enough, but generally it's not. People are resistant to change. They want to do things the way they've been doing them, and they will generally mm-hmm. only adopt a new technology if it's a big improvement in functionality or does something that could never have been done before. So, like our uh, product, the source even though it was kind of expensive and kind of limited, it, uh, it met a need that nobody had ever uh, offered a solution for, you know, wide, a- wide area communications with bulletin boards, email, chat, etc. So focus on need. Uh, next, you have to, uh, to get more than just a few early adopters. And this is the important thing in the business world that we know that there's 2% of people will try almost anything, uh, but that's not enough to build a business, generally speaking. Uh, you need to get to what's called uh, the early adopters, which is about 13%. Uh, 
uh, of the market. And to do that, you have to focus on ease of use and uh, making the cognitive load as low as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, the earliest people think of them like the computer hobbyists who literally built their own computers or had to put lots of different boards in their Apple IIs to do anything interesting. Uh, they're a very different kind of person than a kind of person who wants to open up a Macintosh and just use it. Mm -hmm. But, so focus yeah. on uh, cognitive, mm. uh, lowering the cognitive barrier uh, and ease of use, and then on top of identifying a real need. Yeah. But here's a question, for example, uh, the company Starsky for uh, autonomous truck driver. They already, they already shut down. So that's something I would like to ask you from perspective of entrepreneurship. How you can predict this kind of failure in, in your business? Because sometimes you start be successful and you have you already own the market sometimes, but how you can predict this failure and the growth as well, whether exponential or rhythmic? How this how how we can predict that? Is it easy to predict at the beginning? Well, I think. Uh, well, that's a good question. Well, one, I think you have some ensemble risk. You know, say at the very beginning, uh, I would say you assume the risk is high. Because there's mm -hmm. so many problems that you have to solve. Typically, a, te a, a technical problem, a business problem. How you're going to sell it? Uh, did you understand the needs correctly? Uh, will your cost of building the product be such that the value is higher? So initially, there's a high a high risk in starting any business as an entrepreneur. Then once you get some traction and the customers are starting to buy at prices that are economical. Uh, the, the risk goes down for a while. Uh, then as you uh, increase your market share, you start drawing in competition. So that's your next big risk is that you might have uh, been the first in an area or the second, uh, and you might have a good business so long as uh, there's a small amount of competition. But when large amounts of competition comes into a business, then it's all about uh, price and having sales channels that work at volume. Uh, there's a very famous Harvard Business School paper written about the first generation of uh, hard drive technology, Winchester hard drive technology. There was 104 companies that were started in 1982 uh, to make Winchester hard drives for computers, both personal computers, mini computers, and even mainframes. And of those, I think four survived. And the main reason the other ones that, that they died, most of them succeeded technically, mm -hmm. uh, but the marketplace got way too crowded, way too fast, and only the lowest cost producers could survive. So you have the competitive risk. Then let's say you're one of the ones who wins the competitive risk mm -hmm. and you end up in the final three, most industries, three or four, uh, who are able to make a, long, a good business uh, for a long time. Then you have the innovation risk. Uh, again, from my younger days, think about the mini computer companies. Mm -hmm. uh, these were huge, well-respected companies, Digital Equipment Corporation, Data General, uh, Wang, uh, a couple others. Uh, where are they today? They're all gone. Uh, they were all destroyed by uh, the microcomputer uh, revolution, and none of them uh, were wise to how to manage that transition from their mini computer base to the microcomputer base. Uh, so they were essentially uh, destroyed by innovation. Uh, there's a very important book called The Innovator's Dilemma by Christensen, uh, which makes the point that the cultures of companies make it very, very hard to introduce products that can outcompete the current main product of the company. All the vested interests of the main product line that generates all the money 
uh, will work hard to keep these new upstarts within the company uh, from trying to develop products that compete with the main product of the company. And only the very, very best companies are able to manage that transition and quite rarely. Uh, so that I think is, uh, is the next risk uh, is being out innovated. Mm-hmm. And then some companies just become stupid and, uh, and lazy uh, less so than they used to used to be, but some companies just uh, fail from that. But I think the ones I laid out are the, are the most likely ways that uh, businesses can fail over their over their life cycle. Mm-hmm. That's a very interesting point. If I ask you where innovation mostly comes from, and since you say it's risky, and I can assume that not anyone can take this risk, even in academia or in business, it's really sounds risky. Not anyone can take it. But if I ask you where innovation mostly comes from when you are in business sector? How we make sure you are innovative as well? Yeah, I would say the, uh, well, it depends on the nature of the business. Uh, I've been in industries where most of the innovation came from academia, which we then applied in our business. I've been in businesses where most of the innovation came uh, from within our business and we were kind of uh, technology driven. And then I would say the third uh, case is where we're, uh, where the customers identify the need before we do and bring the need to us. And then we figure out uh, how to make it happen. Uh, so I'd say all three are uh, viable ways that innovation occurs. Mm-hmm. So that's very interesting going also about the technology driven or product driven. And when we see the funding for academia, for example, from business sector, do you think that academia have to focus on which direction is technology driven or product driven in that case i think it i think you have to be very explicit uh, about your uh, relationship with your funder mm-hmm. uh, some people are willing to fund basic research uh, believing in the long term it'll help their business others want more applied and of course in the domain of applied there's quite a big continuum Uh, So for science people, I would uh, strongly recommend having a very deep discussion with funders or partners to understand what they want, and then to make the decision on whether uh, the compromise is necessary to be product focused to the degree the funder wants is something you want to do. For instance, at the Santa Fe Institute, we reject all project work. Mm -hmm. We only do theory, and uh, we constantly get offers to do project Uh, driven product work or applied work and we just say no we don't want to do that Uh, so it's important to know what it is that you do and be very clear in your communications with your funding or uh, partners I've seen uh, much bad will generated when the two sides did not understand each other before the check was written Hmm. yeah that's do you think that's something um worrying to be considered for um, research in general and how you see the trajectory of uh, new ideas that you're interested in AI and robotics field and technology in general. How do you see the trajectory so far? It, 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 as I said, it varies a lot. Uh, you know, in uh, some, like say the field of solid state physics, uh, most of the work comes still out of the universities. Uh, and and the best work and it gets uh you know scouts look for it and bring it into companies uh etc most companies don't do very much solid state physics intel might be an an exception uh in um 
AI, it's a, a blend. Until maybe eight or 10 years ago, most AI came out of academia and was adapted for business. But today, uh, because people perceive the, the winds are so large, uh, the commercial sector now also has very strong uh, AI basic research. Uh, people like uh, uh, particularly Google, IBM, Microsoft, and Facebook, but also some smaller companies. It's mm-hmm. kind of surprising what you will find in some smaller companies willing to do fundamental research. So I think uh, AI is kind of a mixed bag. And I think robotics is too. Uh, the, uh, the the little bit I know about robotics, I have to know the, uh, the I guess he's now the former CEO of Boston Robotics. And mm-hmm. I know they kept uh, close liaison with uh, universities, but I also know they did a fair amount of uh, uh, innovation on their own. Yeah, but I, I think I think having a robotics company, I think it's, since it's hardware company, it's really complicated than software company. And I don't know if you agree with that, that software companies sometimes are achieving more success. Um, do you think that's right? Uh, at the moment, I mean, I think the big wins in, uh, in AI are mostly software, right? They're, uh, you know, the, the, the algorithm that tells you what you see on Facebook, right? It's all yeah. software. Uh, you know, the translation stuff on Google, all software. Uh, so, you know, software is easier. The real world is hard. Robotics is really hard. Uh, in fact, one of the projects I'm a little bit involved with, uh, the uh, uh, Ben Gertzel and his yeah. uh, uh, Singularity Net and his, uh, what, was, what the hell was it called before that? But anyway, his all of his AI stuff, uh, they've worked with robotics companies, worked with a company called uh, Hanson Robotics. Exactly. And they found the... Uh, well, actually, we had big debates about this with some yeah. one faction saying we should work with simulators and the other saying we should work with actual robots right mm-hmm. and eventually the actual robots uh faction mostly won and so uh, for a while uh, a whole lot of the effort of the uh, of the group went into working with physical robots but uh, physical robots are just so hard right because there's mm-hmm. you know things that just take forever to get right uh, while software can move ahead much more rapidly. So the project is now much more focused on software again. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would say it is a good insight that uh, people who are used to working on software time clocks uh, will have issues when they have, if they don't understand the much slower rate of progress in physical robotics. Yeah, I think that's interesting because we already had Ben Goldson on the podcast and we discussed this point. And I, I think this debate about using simulation of physical robotics, I think that's related to Starsky uh, company when shut down because they was collecting data and it's cost around $50,000. Uh, so just it's, it's the amount of money is very high if you work in physical robots. So I think the simulation really could be helpful, but realistically speaking, now we're missing uh, this kind of simulation to reality. Uh, yeah, of course, the simulation is going to lose a lot. And, and the other point that I, I used to make is when I was sympathetic to the robot side mm-hmm. uh, is somebody's got to build the simulation. And if you want it to be really rich, it's a lot of work to build it. The universe is free, so you get the simulation for free, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have to write uh, you know, and, and describe the environment. There actually is a physical environment, uh, but I think as it's turned out that for 
certain classes of problems, uh, getting the environment for free is not big enough relative to the slower and more expensive uh, costs associated with uh, doing physical robotics. But on the other hand, there are some, you know, there are many problems that you have to solve physically or you haven't solved the problem. You know, for instance, a delivery robot can't do that with just software. You might be able to make some progress on the routing algorithms and software, but at the end of the day, you have to figure out a, uh, uh, a robot that'll take the package out of the truck, climb the stairs and deliver the, the package to the front door of the house. And so if the nature of the problem may require that you deal with the physical, uh, they'll maybe put it out off for a while by using uh, simulated environments. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, you know, many interesting projects require self-driving cars, of course. Uh, you could have uh, all the self-driving car simulations and we know that all the big players are doing many more miles in simulation than they're doing on the road. But uh, to actually deliver a product, you're gonna have to do a whole lot of on the road to find the corner cases uh, and see how reality varies from the simulation. Yeah, but do you think that's something um, to shift the focus from using physical robotics and invest more in simulation or AVI technologies? Do you think that's related to venture capitalists in, in Silicon Valley, for example, and how they can get the money for a certain project and in, in, in business. So do you think there's something have to work in awareness uh, of the problem? Do you think we, we are not aware of the problem because we still, for example, say for driving car, we still way more and other companies still doesn't have something in the road yet, uh, rather than Tesla? Yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, and now uh, you talk about it, I think uh, venture capitalists, at least the ones I know, many of them feel like they were burned on robotics because hmm. uh, they are they are used to software speed become used to software speed or hardware device speed and hardware devices are a uh, little slower than software but they're a lot faster than robotics uh, and so uh, I suspect that relatively few venture capitalists would be good partners for a hard robotics problem and it's interesting to note, that uh, few, none of the general purpose self-driving car companies, mm -hmm. is that true, uh, are venture capital funded. Uh, maybe some of the little ones have failed, but mostly they're big industrial companies uh, that are doing it who already had other businesses, Google, uh, Uber, uh, Tesla, and maybe Apple, who knows what they're doing in their secret car works. Yeah. Uh, so, it, yeah, so I think uh, big time general ish robotics is a hard venture capital sale. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, specialty robotics, like, you know, industrial, a better industrial arm, uh, that's within reach of venture capital. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what you think about Boston Dynamics because it's still secretive and and no one know what's happening actually, but what, what do you think about Boston Dynamics uh, in terms of other body companies? I have no information about it. I've talked to nobody there in a couple of years, so I don't even know what, you know, even, I know they were, last time I talked to them, they were being bought by some private equity company or something. So mm -hmm. I really don't know, don't have any mm -hmm. real knowledge of what they're doing. Yeah. All I see is the occasional video they release, uh, which look impressive, but yeah. I understand are pretty heavily staged. Yeah, yeah. So I think back into the uh, hands robotics, because when we have been, there is a lot of criticism about how AGI as a concept and AGI token and 
and and and this idea sounds a little bit um not approachable yet because it was predicted since 10 years ago in 2009 and there's nothing yet happened and i i don't know what you think about these ideas about aga token and and democratizing ai and decentralized ai services as well how does this resonate to you um well i think i'm of the view that agi is doable uh, but i don't have anything like a reasonable sense of when uh not close enough to the field uh to be able to say as we know there have been surveys done and i think the you know the median estimates are like 30 or 40 years that sort of seems like it might be right uh on the other hand we may be two tricks away from solving it so uh i have a a, a fuzzy uh mean at maybe 30 years but a very high variance on agi itself now with respect to the uh, AI marketplace that uh, Singularity Net, Ben Gertzel and, and his friends are putting together. Uh, I think that could work. Uh, I think they have to think it through really well. They have to have interfaces that are easy enough for customers to use. The first couple versions were not. I tried to use the very first one. I threw up my hand and said, hey, this is not worth the level of effort. Uh, the second one was barely able to be used. I understand they have the new interface is just coming out right now. Uh, and so if the interface is easy enough that experimenters in the R&D groups at big companies can start using it, maybe they have an opportunity. If not, then not, because people are not going to uh, master really, really hard technology just to just do the initial exploring. Mm -hmm. So do you think that any decision which is significant can be taken by a machine? Do you agree with that? that any significant, significant decision must must be delegated to robotics or intelligent machine. Because there is a lot, of, a lot of debate, for example, Jeffrey Hinton, he said that you can, if you if you trust a machine uh, for high percentage, like 90% for doing a surgery, and rather than skilled surgeon who has maybe a prone to the error. How do you see this kind of debate? Any significant decision should be delegated uh, to good, a robot? That's a very good question, and I'm a, uh, very much a pragmatist. Mm. Uh, I'd say go with the data, right? If uh, we know that the uh, robotic surgeon is, you know, measurably better than the human surgeon, then I'd go with the robotic surgeon. Mm -hmm. uh, I would just not be emotional about it. I'd say, uh, what's the data? Uh, I would, of course, look carefully at the experimental design and make sure we hadn't fooled ourselves. Uh, but I would let the data, I would let the data speak for itself. Same true with self-driving cars. Uh, when self-driving cars can be demonstrably safer than human cars, uh, then I hope they become generally uh, uh, available, even if they're not perfect. Uh, and I think we'll have to deal with the legal issues around that, which may require a lot of innovation and in things like insurance. But I'd say be pragmatic and driven by the data. Uh, when the robotic solution's better, use it. Yeah. So coming back to politics, uh, do you think that technology can be really um, affected by politics and how it's running in, in our world? Because I think for a situation of like bias in AI tools we see already, that's already an issue we have. Do you think we can reach having unbiased AI services to help as a human being and don't have any bias anymore in our life, regular life? So how do you see the effect of politics and technology? And we can reach one day having a, a rational, unbiased AI services can be 
help us in our life one day? Uh, well, actually, I think that unbiased would be useless, right? All useful stuff in AI is bias. Yeah. Uh, if you don't have bias, AI uh, would not be able to make any decisions. Uh, I think people need to remember that bias is the ability to make distinctions based on data. Uh, so I think the you know uh, bias-free AI is an oxymoron, makes no sense. I think there are certain kinds of biases we want to try to regulate out. You know, for instance, gender or racial biases. Uh, but bias itself is the essence of AI, and that's, that's one of the reasons that it makes it so difficult uh, to uh, you know get rid of, uh, say, let's say, racial bias. For instance, even though it is illegal to use a racial field in AI for a loan application, uh, machine learning is really clever, and it finds surrogates, uh, for instance, around zip code and the kinds of cars people own. And so it ends up discriminating racially, even without knowing what the race of the people are. Uh, so I think it, uh, because the essence of AI is, potentially machine learning, is discrimination. Uh, one has to be really thoughtful in how one regulates it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, in, terms of, yeah, so in terms of other aspects about politics and technology, I certainly hope that there is a big change in how we organize our economy. Uh, mm -hmm. And that the wins from uh, automation, especially th as we approach AGI, it doesn't even have to be AGI, but strong AI, stronger AI, that we find a way to socialize the benefit. In fact, before this call, I wrote some notes down to myself. One of the things I wrote down was, hmm, wouldn't it be interesting if every time a technology was deployed that replaced one worker, uh, some percentage of that company's equity went into an endowment fund for the citizens of that country. Uh, so that grad, as the, the boat of automation replaced jobs, uh, the, the citizenry of the country would have a larger and larger equity endowment in those companies, which could pay a universal basic income. I do mm -hmm. believe something like universal basic equity and universal basic income is gonna be very, 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 very important uh, if we're going to make technology actually work for the human race going forward. Mm -hmm. I think that's an interesting point because I th that's something I I don't know if many people in, in business sector are aware of this point. Do you think there be attention for this kind of um, planning this, how we can make sure this kind of socialism and, and like capitalism as well, how we can make sure this balance between each side. Do you think there's something really consider very well uh, and, and no heck no very few business people have thought about it and those that have hate it mm. uh there was a few exceptions elon musk talks regularly about the must-have of ubi uh, and there's a few others but most don't think about it and to the degree they do think about it they're opposed to it uh, so this will not come from the business community this will have to come from the political realm and it is time that the people get off their ass and realize that politics can control business when it wants to and should demand that uh, equitable treatment of humanity with respect uh, to high ai uh, products uh, be done but only the people can do that themselves don't expect business people to do it they're not going to i think that's a very powerful point do you think people will maybe know the truth, but maybe they uh, pretend they don't know it? You think this kind of... I don't know, because it's very clear that, but um, where do you think the problems come down from? Why? Well, part, 
of course, part of it is most people do not understand uh, the rate at which jobs are going to be automated, right? In the same way, it was shocking to me how people did not understand the nature of an exponential in this pandemic that we're going through. Mm. Uh, most people don't have the quantitative skills and then many people, probably less people, don't have the cognitive skills to think this through. Uh, so they don't know that their jobs are going to be automated during their lifetime. Uh, and and if they do, they don't take it very seriously because of hyperbolic discounting. Humans look at the future very, at a very discounted fashion. So therefore, wiser folks must articulate these ideas and, and socialize them into the populace and convince the populace, probably through things including entertainment, uh, that this is a real problem and that we need a political solution. You know, today, uh, Andrew, remember Andrew Yang ran for mm. president of the United States on a UBI yeah. platform, very aware of the issue. I don't think he got more than 2% of the vote in any state. Uh, so there's a, a you know, a, a many years education and acculturation problem of educating the, the populace on the reality of this and probably going to require some pain to occur too before people take it seriously. So it's a long haul, but one that has to be done. Mm -hmm. That's a very serious issue. Do you think that something like regulation, and I, I, I can't imagine how this can be solved, to be honest, uh, if, if the businessman like Elon Musk is like these people who have a lot of money and can control the ideas. I, I think even in academia, the same issue. If you have a lot of money, you can do what you, what you want and ideas. But how you can imagine solution? Is it regulation or outreaching? How do you imagine solution for that? A solution of getting people to be aware? Or how do you get regulation to make the change? Two different questions. I think both of the questions could be legitimate to be asked. Yeah, I think the first one is not subject to regulation. That's subject to political work and long-term work. I think, you know, political, new political parties should come up now that have this as their idea and they should take 10 years if it takes that long to educate the populace that they're right. Uh, so I think that has to be grassroots, bottom-up politics, people doing the hard work of convincing millions of people. But then once these groups do get some political power, then regulation is the way to proceed. Because business is not going to do this voluntarily, I can tell you that. Uh, again, so example, the example I threw out, that every time you displace a worker, some of your equity goes into an endowment for all citizens, uh, as an example. Uh, you know, regulate, I think we can already do a little regulation in these uh, uh, bias areas uh, where we, you know, as I said, we do have some rules already about not being able to use race data in loan uh, approval, automated loan approval. We probably have to go further and uh, have regulations about disparate impact, for instance, it requires some smart thinking. Uh, but the big question to my mind is the, uh, you know, how do we turn a society where it's mostly humans doing the work into a society where it's mostly not humans doing the work and yet all the humans end up being better off? That's the real challenge. Yeah, I think this is a question I would like to ask in this perspective. How we ensure that robotics is going to be beneficial to humanity as a whole, in terms of business or academia? Since this is something I think, I don't know how you imagine this question really uh, deployed realistically in everything we do, either research, on business or technology we develop. 
Yeah, I think at the end of the day, the only way it's going to happen is through politics, because business is going to want to do what it does and maximize its profit. Uh, academia, as we know, mm. uh, is very tends to be very, 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 very narrow. So people are working on small problems without any understanding of the larger contexts. Mm. Uh, so I think at the end of the day, this is a political problem. Now, I do think we can have some uh, industry-based and academic-based uh, best practices uh, that we don't do things that are just plain stupid. I mean, that we think about, for instance, disparate impact uh, on on work that we do. And as we get closer to AI, we certainly need to start thinking about AI safety. And probably academia and business need to do that before government is even aware of the problem. Uh, so there are some areas, but the big one, making robotics and AI work for humanity is fundamentally a political problem. If we allow capitalism unrestrained uh, to operate, it will not turn out that way. It'll turn into a new feudalism with mm. a small number of capital owners making vast fortunes and everybody else driven to the edge. Yeah, yeah. But that's a pretty dire view, yeah. but I hope that's motivation for people to get off their ass and do the political work. Yeah, but also about the ideas. For example, enhanced robotics and uh, self-driving car or self-truck driver. The design concept as well as replacing human being. I, maybe I, I, I'm I'm not with the idea of having like Sophia robot, for example, or self truck driver uh, for Starsky. But because I, I we know that some people could lose the job. But the ideas just generated or created inside these companies. Do you think how these ideas really? can be shifted to the good of humanity and not replace yeah. the human being. And what is the I, idea behind it? Because I don't know how you see from your experience that some ideas make sense and can help and some ideas, it's really in, dangerous, like Sophia Robert, for example, and replacing a human teacher with, in China, they have these ideas. But I don't know what is the idea behind replacing human being. What do you think the idea behind it? I think it's good. I think it's in the long term with the right political structure, it's great, right? Why? Uh, most most work is boring. Uh, mm. How would you like to be a long haul truck driver? I you probably wouldn't, right? I know yeah. I sure as shit wouldn't. Uh, and I and this is where I think so we need a, a much bigger vision. Uh, when I ever hear a politician talk about jobs, 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 yeah. I understand they don't understand the future. In reality, we should have a world with as few jobs as possible uh, so that people can work on their own projects, their own self-actualization, their art, uh, their family, love, etc. Mm -hmm. Why should we spend the biggest part of our day and oftentimes the biggest part of our talent uh, on something as often boring and unfulfilling as a job? But mm -hmm. to make that realistic, we have to have a completely different socioeconomic system so that people are better off economically not working than they were when they were working. Yeah, but I think it comes down to the skills again, because not everyone is skilled in tech sector. And I think that's issue also of education. If you want the population to be more focused in certain aspect and leaving the boring jobs because i think it's it's more complicated issue i think in a community to 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 solve this issue how do you think in the long run do you think the community have to only focus on learning certain skills type so that they can they can do the jobs boring jobs no 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 i think that uh, again that's to my point is bigger than that is that in the future most people won't have jobs at all they mm -hmm. won't do work at all 
right? Mm. And that's why we need a radical restructuring of the flow of benefits uh, from the economy so that most people make a living without working at all. Because you were right. Most people don't have the temperament or the cognitive skill uh, kit uh, to do advanced robotics programming, let's say, right? It's not going to happen. And the idea that you're going to turn all the truck drivers and warehouse workers into uh, Python programmers and uh, TensorFlow experts is just ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, so why not design a world where people don't have jobs at all, where 90% of people don't have jobs and they're better off than they were when they had jobs? That, to my mind, is the real vision of the 21st century. Mm -hmm. and, and do you think that maybe in the future will be like how is this um, communication between human and robotics? It will be cooperative or competitive in the workplace? Again, if we take my vision, where the more the robots do, the better off the humans are, all humans, then it will be very cooperative, right? Because uh, people say, hey, if I can get these robots to replace me, I can retire and get paid 125% of what mm -hmm. I was making before. Uh, and they will then have a strong incentive to get uh, the robots to take their jobs. But if we run a straight capitalist system like we do today, uh, that will be very antagonistic. You know, mm -hmm. people will start shooting the tires out of robotic trucks, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, putting sugar in the gas tank of the robotic Ubers. So we need a fundamental political revolution uh, if we're going to have people be cooperative. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But do you think Singularity can, can reach at this point and play different cards in that case for robotics and AI? Singularity? Uh, it's not by itself. It, the politics has to come along. Uh, singularity net or any singularity effort uh, can only do its thing. It can't solve the politics. Politics is a separate domain and people working in the political sphere have to change the parameters of our social operating system so that mm -hmm. as we come closer to the singularity, it works for humanity. But that's a different problem mm -hmm. uh, than the technical problem of reaching the singularity. So how many years do we predict that we can reach this level? How many years do we predict? To what? Reach the singularity? No, to uh, even solving the issue, if we, the idea that you highlighted. Oh, when the political you, issue? Yes. Um, eh, that's a good, if I was going to pick a number, I would say uh, something less than 10 years. Okay, that's a great. Okay. Uh, I'd say if we don't solve it by then, it'd probably be too late. Yeah. Uh, but I know a lot of people working on it. Uh, you know, uh, our Game B movement is working on it, and there are other people as well. Um, and it, when it, it, these things are exponentials, right? The network propagation of the idea that unless we do this, humanity is going to be turned into serfs for a small number of capitalists yeah. uh, seems absurd if I say it today to most people. Uh, but in two years, it'll seem less absurd to a few percent. And a few years after that, to the early adopter, 13%. And once you get to 15%, uh, the eventually the whole system will tip. Yeah, yeah. I think that's uh, a good idea. And I think that's people because people have concern about social inequality. But since you highlight this idea, I think we can consider it could be considered uh, fully in and, and their plans. So, yeah, I agree with that. So, I would like to ask you in the next 100 years what the thing you wish for humanity? Uh, can do next, well, next hundred years well number one and it has, it has only a little bit to do with robotics and ai mm. is we have to stop our 
uh, overreach against the ecosystem, right? Uh, our capitalist machine is out of control and without pulling back very, very hard, uh, we're going to uh, make our planet unlivable by 9 billion people. And we would see a catastrophic drop in population, horrible wars, uh, slaughters of the worst sort. So job one for humanity above all else is learning to live within the ecological limits of our society. And that's going to require many, many changes, getting off of fossil fuels, probably reducing uh, the amount of meat in the diet of uh, people, uh, much more public transportation, uh, smaller houses, many, many, many changes that have to be done. So that's, and that has to be done by the end of the century or it's going to be too late. Uh, But second, and in the longer term, more exciting is to make advanced technology the servant of the human race so that Mm. the human race for the first time ever uh, can spend its time on art and self-actualization and real scientific research and uh, not having to live on the sweat of their brow for their their sustenance so that uh, mankind is finally freed uh, from work. And I think we could certainly do that by the end of the century uh, as well. And then the third, and this is where I get a little bit, uh, uh, maybe a little bit out there, is I believe the true destiny of humanity is to bring life to the universe. Uh, so once we've solved the first two problems or when the first two problems are well on their way to being solved, then we start to say, what is the purpose of humanity? The purpose of humanity is to bring life to what, what appears to be a dead universe. So it's now time for us to start to think about how do we send life into the universe? And it may be that we first send robotic probes far out into the galaxy to see what's out there. And then in a hundred thousand years, we send life out there. Uh, Or maybe we decide that life actually means our robots, and maybe we send robotics out to develop the universe. Uh, So my far, far vision, which is a lot more than 100 years, more like 100,000 years, Mm -hmm. is to bring the universe to life. Wow, that's that's a very nice idea. So in this journey, do you think ego is important in that case, to come up with these ideas? Ego. Ego? Yes. Ego? Well, I think ego, you do need it. sometimes uh otherwise you're just a mass of protoplasm on the floor right uh but ego can also be destructive when it overreaches uh, and when you start to take it too seriously right Mm. uh it's basically a software hack uh that runs in your brain and it's useful for some things and it's negative for other things uh and uh learning how to modulate ego and how to back away from the bad parts of ego, I think are very important. In our game B world, we talk a lot about psychotechnologies, including contemplative practices, psychedelic drugs, nootropics, etc., uh, that help us see through the mirage of too strong an ego mm-hmm. and to keep ego in its place. It shouldn't go away, but it needs to be kept in its place. Yeah. So we come to the end. Which book inspired you and you would recommend? What books have I uh, inspired uh, you? Oh gosh, there's so many of them. Um, Just one. The the first one uh, I read when I was ten years old, and it probably had more effect on my life than any other. Uh, Isaac uh, Isaac Asimov's Foundation Trilogy. Hmm. 
Great. So if I ask you, what is the best advice was given to you with a person professionally you think was a life changing to you and you can share it with us? Okay, yeah, my uh, first really good business mentor uh, was like me, kind of a working class kid who'd come up through the ranks. Uh, and his advice, which happened to be temperamentally suited to me, was in business, don't go along with the crowd. Hmm. Be willing to express your ideas and work on expressing your ideas and fight for your ideas. Don't be a go along guy. That's good advice. So finally, I would like to give you any final words for Bodex Real community. You would like to see final words. Uh, I would say that what you're doing is important. Uh, I think finding the right funding partners is critical. And I think reaching out into the political world and helping educate people working on the politics of social change, uh, what needs to be done to make robotics and AI beneficial for the human race uh, is something people should start doing right now. Great. Thanks so much. It was such an honor to talk to you. And above all, I triple A robotics. I would like to thank for your time. Thanks so much. Well, I enjoyed it very much. You asked very excellent questions. Thank you. Thanks so much.